This podcast is brought to you by West Australia's Department of Primary Industries and Regional Development. Hello and welcome to our series focusing on areas of broadacre grains research. These podcasts aim to assist grain growers by delving deeper into our research projects that target crop protection, crop production, soils and genetics in broadacre crops. My name is Alice Butler and I am a scientist with DPIRD based in Perth. Today I'm speaking with Steve Davies, a senior soils research scientist based in Geraldton. Hello Steve, how are you going? Hello Alice, good, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Um, so we usually start off with just a little bit of your background. So are you able to tell me kind of what led you to become a soils researcher? So maybe a bit further back? <laughs> yeah, so I guess um initially uh like i wasn't from a farming background but my father was so i was sort of one generation removed he wasn't the eldest son so he didn't kind of end up on the farm but that was a, a little farm just outside of port piri um in south australia unfortunately it was the wrong side of the ranges so it was sort of on the dry side of the ranges it would have been really cool if a farm had been on the other side of the ranges there at Port Pirie because it would have been wetter, but that's okay. Um, but yeah, it was really great as a kid visiting uh, my grandparents on the farm and um, just being able to experience, you know, a little bit of that freedom to run around down the creeks and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, the, and then so what happened was when I was going into high school, um, sort of my parents, I guess, and, and with my agreement, decided to go to an agricultural high school in Adelaide in South Australia. And um, the real great thing about that was that we could actually, uh, once we sort of got to that year 11 and year 12 um, age, we could do agricultural science as a, what they would call ATAR subject um, these days. And um, was really fortunate that we were, um, the teacher that we had for agricultural science was actually a PhD. He had a PhD in zoology, even though he's a high school teacher. And he was very eccentric um, and, and um, sort of a really interesting character, but he's an extremely good teacher. There was only nine of us that went through um, at, at the time I was going through, nine of us that were doing the agricultural science course. And yeah, he um, actually got a laboratory set up in one of the outbuildings at the high school and gave us keys and we were free to go and do experiments at lunchtime and to hang out in the laboratory whenever we wanted to. And we actually, we had our classes in the lab. He sort of did a bit of extra and taught us statistics, which was a bit beyond the syllabus at the time. And he was just brilliant. Yeah, as I say, quite eccentric. He was actually an ex-Green Beret, so that was kind of interesting too. And uh, I think of the nine students that went through with me in those two years doing the Ag Science degree, um, seven of the nine went on to do PhDs. So you've just released an e-book, e-book number seven, and that's all about water repellent soils and kind of just a whole like a big culmination of all the research you've done to date along with a few other co-authors are you able to in simple terms just explain the mechanisms that are at play when we have soil water repellents issues yeah so um soil water repellents comes about because um yeah look plants produce waxes and oils and we kind of know that we kind of know that the leaves of on plants and things that they have waxy substances. We kind of know that plants produce oils and things. And as the, as those plant materials go back into the soil um, and break down, you know, the, some of those sort of fats and waxes and oils are actually some of the slowest things to break down. They don't 
um, they're kind of high in carbon and they're not that sort of yummy for the, the microbes and things to actually break down. And so a lot of those um, sort of water repellent compounds, really, they're water repellent organic compounds, end up sort of coating the soil. And we have a lot of obviously sandy topsoils. And even if, you know, we've got some clay underneath, we've often got this layer of sand on top with our duplex soils and things. And so with sandy soils, you know, they're quite coarse, so they've got fairly low surface area and they become quite easily coated um, with these um, water repellent organic materials. And of course, um, there are microbes that can break those things down, but the microbes only really work when it's wet. And so we're also quite a dry environment generally um, in our certainly in our um, grain belt. And so, you know, they only get a limited time to break down these things. And as I say, they're quite resistant to break down anyway. So yeah, we end up coating the soil in these um, hydrophobic or water repellent compounds. Um, so there's also some that can come from microbes and other things as well. And so what happens is that as, you know, water tries to infiltrate that soil, it really just sort of beads up on the surface and it won't actually penetrate into the pores. It's actually the, the surface tension of the water is such and the, the repellency means that it's sort of not actually, yeah, soaking onto the soil, soil grains and actually soaking into the soil. And so, you know, eventually water will enter these water repellent soils, but it can take a long time. Um, you know, some of the most severe ones it might take six minutes or even 10 minutes or even 20 minutes or longer, you know, for the most severe cases. And obviously um, out in the real world, out in the environment, um, you know, if water's sitting on the surface and not actually going in for that amount of time, you're losing some of it to evaporation and some of it might run down the hill and some of it, um, you know, might find a big hole and go down, but the rest of the soil stays dry. So. The soils don't wet up evenly um, and they take a long time to wet up and you turn to end up with persistent areas where the water might go down because there's an old root system there or some pathway and then you get other areas which just remain persistently dry as well. I guess the evaporation component, if you only get a small amount of rainfall in our cropping system, that's quite precious. Yeah, if it doesn't sort of penetrate very far and if a lot of it just sits on the surface, you know, it can sort of be gone before it kind of gets deep enough into the soil to kind of be away from evaporation. And, um, yeah, at the same time, I mean, I guess it, it's sort of useful to sort of note, I guess, in a way that once the soil does sort of get wet underneath, uh, that sort of water repellent layer can actually act as a bit of an insula insulator and, and, and actually sort of stop water from escaping the soil. So it sort of can have both effects, but overall the negative impacts, I guess, on your um, water availability and, and access for, for your crops to or pastures to the water in the soil is sort of more negative than, than, the, than, than, than that positive, really. But um, it'd be kind yeah. of nice if we could control it. So... You know, we've kind of talked about sands and a lot of our soils are highly weathered in WA, but then you go to kind of around Cojanup and you have those forest gravels. Are the same mechanisms at play there causing the repellents? Those soils are quite different and we're mm. having the same issue. Uh, is it the same mechanisms? Yeah, well, it basically is the same mechanism. I mean, one of the things in the gravels um, and in that environment is obviously they um, had a history of like having a lot of those um, large native forests on, on a lot of those soils. And I guess there's a bit of an understanding now that 
um, even some of those um, hydrophobic compounds and that that were deposited by the native forests might still be having an influence on that soil being water repellent, even though it might have transitioned to, um, you know, pasture and, and these days a lot more cropping on those soils. And so there is sort of some effect that some of the worst areas are some of the areas where um, some of that forest actually was in the past. Um, and then the other aspect with gravels is that, um, you know, you they're quite productive environments. Um, they're high rainfall, so you get quite a lot of um, plant biomass that sort of ends up going back into the soil. And then the other thing is you you sort of end up concentrating all that organic matter, which includes this water repellent um, component, um, into the little bit of soil that sort of is in amongst the gravel. So you're kind of actually concentrating that um, water repellent stuff in the bit of soil where you need the water to go in. And so you get a concentration of nutrients, you get a concentration of organic matter, but you also get this concentration of these water repellent compounds. And so they can actually register as some of the, our most severely repellent soils, those ones, even though you sort of think, well, there's more rainfall there. And, you know, they still can be quite productive because once they do get wet, um, and, you know, with the traditional rainfall we've had in that area, that probably eventually got wet. But you'll still notice sometimes sort of on the slopes of the hills that, um, you know, there's still often poor, quite sparse pasture establishment. And the other mechanism there is because it's hilly, if the water's not soaking in properly straight away, it's actually going down the hill and ending up sort of downstream and in, in the valley floors and things. So, you know, there's quite a few mechanisms that impact on the water not being captured and actually helping your plants grow kind of where it's repellent. Moving on to management, typically there's wetters used in that area, but can you do a lot with those kind of gravelly soils? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's fortunate. I mean, look, there's, there's gravels and gravels around the state and they do actually vary in terms of their geology and how they've formed um, and how sandy that matrix is. And we have, like, I guess for those sort of forest gravels, it seems as though that a lot of our soil wetters that are sort of currently available are really effective on those soils. And um, hence, they're a really good option because um, if you ban them, you know, you don't need a lot of litres per hectare. It might work at even just one or two litres per hectare. So the cost isn't that high. And we've seen yield benefits of, you know, consistently around... Um, you know, half a tonne or even a little bit more in cereals um, and maybe three, four hundred kilos of canola. So it's very easy to cover, you know, to be to be really positive um, economically. And it just gives you that insurance of better establishment. So that means they compete with the weeds better and all that sort of stuff as well. We have found certainly in our research that sometimes if you go to um, quite a different sort of gravel soil, say you go into the West Midlands area, you go to quite a sandy gravel there that sometimes those um, wetting agents, they do work, but kind of mainly more with dry, if you're dry seeding in particular and with cereals, they don't work quite as reliably. And so I guess some, um, yeah, people have certainly looked at other options. And um, I guess the strategic tillage approaches where you're sort of doing either a deep inversion or a deep mixing, um, yeah, there certainly are still opportunities to even use those on on a gravel soil yes you can bring up rocks and yes you can bring up stumps and so it's not a it's not something to be taken lightly and you do have to actually deal with the paddock afterwards and clean it up 
level it out and you know get it ready um, as a cropping paddock again but they are also some of the most responsive so once you do do that they tend to actually um, be very still quite productive soils we've also had some experiments where you know, we were talking a bit earlier about where we, you know, in gravels, everything becomes concentrated in the sand, the volume, the smaller volume of soil, sorry, that's uh, in the matrix around the gravel. And it's, we sort of had a, the thought about, you know, clay spreading. So that's another thing where you can excavate clay rich subsoil and you can spread it. And by increasing the clay content, you can sort of overcome water repellents. Um, you know, for a really long time, for decades, we sort of know that it lasts for decades if you get your clay content in the topsoil up high enough. And we sort of thought, well, you know, really, do we need as much clay subsoil if we're claying a gravel? Because we only need to treat the volume of soil. It'll get concentrated in the soil that's the actual soil and the gravel stones will just take up the extra volume. <laughs> And so, yeah, we actually did get quite, um, uh, you know, some quite good responses to clay spreading at rates of even 150 tonnes of subsoil per hectare. And that subsoil had about 35% clay. So that's quite a lot lower than what we would sort of probably recommend for a straight um, sand. But then, you know, having said that at the same time, you know, sort of partial inversion of those soils with uh, sort of, you know, modified one-way plough discs, you know, probably gave even more of a yield response, but there was still this this benefit of the added clay. So they're, they're really interesting soils. A lot of your research has been on sands as well, so around Houston mm. and down around Esperance. Um, kind of typically, what are the growers' main management strategies in these environments? Yeah, well, look, um, yeah, certainly the sort of the one-off strategic deep tillage, either inversion or deep mixing, is really, um, yeah, I mean, the two areas that you mentioned, sort of that Geraldton port zone and the Esperance port zone, we do know from a recent survey that, you know, almost two-thirds of growers are sort of doing that strategic deep tillage and using some of those methods, um, and obviously, probably, you know, even higher than that for, for deep ripping and sort of managing their compaction. Um, and it's good to see more people sort of adopt controlled traffic with that as, you know, a way of sort of preventing some of that um, recompaction and things. Um, and so, yeah, they've become really common practices and it's a way that people, obviously it's not all about water repellents at all. It's about um, productivity gain that they have. It's about incorporating lime into soils that, Often there's a bit of subsoil acidity there. Um, it actually sort of redistributes the nutrients through the profile a bit, puts them down where they stay a bit wetter and maybe a bit more accessible uh, through the seasons, um, uh, through the dry periods of the season. And, um, yeah, and it, and it can sort of alter weed control. Obviously, inversion sort of gives you really good weed control, but even um, things like rotary spading, um, you know, can sort of help make, uh, help with weed control as long as, you know, you've sort of got the right weed management practices in place. It can sort of help give you better control. You can get better crop competition. You can get the weeds sort of establishing a bit more synchronously. Um, and we do tend to find that the soil applied herbicides actually become more um, active. Um, they actually work more effectively on these um, soils where the repellency has been sort of dealt with. And um, that can actually mean you can risk crop damage depending on the, the, the herbicides you use, but there's also the opportunity that they work better on the weeds. So, you know, there is some opportunities there. 
So it's really this package of things and water repellents is a part of it, but it's not the sole reason why people are doing it. With like all that being said, what is your current research focusing on in this area? Yeah, so I'm involved in a few research projects. The main one that I'm managing at the moment is actually sort of looking at, well, if you do undertake some of that strategic deep tillage um, soil amelioration, we sometimes refer it to, um, for whatever reason, really, um, you know, how what what, is, what are some of the implications around management and what are some of the ways that you can ensure that you do get the best outcomes? So we're very interested in looking at aspects of ensuring that we get um, good crop establishment um, the year it's done and try to really minimise the wind erosion risk. So we're looking at things like the timing of amelioration, trying to do it at a different times where perhaps the wind erosion risk is less. We're doing some more work just this year on, you know, uh, one pass amelioration seeding systems, which are probably a bit more popular down at Esperance, but probably not done so much in other areas that we're interested in is where you might be spading or inversion ploughing, um, which is your sort of deep tillage, but in the at the same time you're actually seeding your first sort of cover crop into the soil. So the advantage of it is, is you're bringing up, you know, often wet subsoil, wet subsurface soil, it's quite moist, and if you put a seed into it straight away, you, you know, it's virtually instantly imbibing, starting to germinate and establish and so the time at which the soil sort of left bare is reduced to the absolute bare, the bare minimum. It's <laughs> it's reduced to the minimum, you know, time possible um, before you obviously have a nice cereal cover crop, which then, you know, protects that soil. Um, and a lot of guys um, in Geraldton have kind of done a similar thing. They've still sort of done a two-pass operation, but they were doing such large areas that they were, um, often inversion ploughing, um, and then within 24 hours they'd built sort of light seeders that would come on and seed the soil within sort of 12, 24 hours of it actually being inverted. So we've also been investigating and will continue to investigate the approach of actually broadcast spreading oh, wow. the seed prior to spading. And, yes, we do know that we need to use quite a high seed rate, but we just um, – yeah, I guess our initial experiments to date have suggested that it can work really well. Um, so we need to sort of weigh up the costs and the yeah. uh, benefits of, of that approach. But um, And we're sort of looking at this whole thing around, um, I guess one of the things when I sort of started hearing about um, longer coleoptile weeds and that, my brain instantly thought, oh, that would be quite good for an ameliorated soil because with long coleoptiles, if the seed ends up a bit deep or, you know, yeah. we've got better chance of it emerging anyway and just increasing that percentage of seed, um, proportion of seed which emerges and gets better ground cover more quickly, which is what it's all about. So um, we're also looking at that aspect too. So, um, yeah, look, a whole range of um, aspects. Um, also in that project, uh, we're sort of looking at the value of crop rotations and how um, the amelioration and the subsequent rotations impact on soil-borne pests and diseases. So in conjunction with our plant pathology group within the department, um, and that's just showing some really interesting outcomes as well. We're, and we're looking at the aspect of herbicides and, and how they their activity changes um, with amelioration and what that means in terms of how we, both the opportunities in terms of weed control, um, but also how we make sure we don't, sometimes our establishment issues are being compounded by 
um, some damage from herbicides. So we're trying to understand that aspect as well. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so it seems like, um, yeah, I know your project is titled post-amelioration, So, um, but it's sort of like you've kind of got a handle on how to uh, overcome the water repellent issue, but then obviously tackling that problem leads to other problems. So it's sort of like... Yeah, it sort of leads to these other risks and we're kind of trying to find ways of just saying let's, you know, it's, it's a big investment to undertake a soil amelioration project. So let's just try and minimise the potential downsides and the potential risks just to make sure we maximise and optimise the benefit of that. Um, and, yeah, and I guess at the same time, we're still always trying to understand the science and understand, that, you know, now we're delving a bit more into the biology um, uh, as, a, as a department, the biology, you know, how's the biology changing and what does it mean, what are the implications for that? The water repellent issues that we have in Australia, are they seen in other parts of the world? Uh, yeah, look, they they are. There's certainly, you know, parts of the Mediterranean where it's an issue. You sometimes find when you look in the literature that, like, they're very interested in, in some of their forested areas, so forestry um, and some of what happens in forestry. They're quite interested in that. Um, there are parts of, of Europe where um, they're quite sandy and so they, they're quite aware of the problem. But um, certainly Western Australia sort of stands out in terms of just our proportion of having an awful lot of, you know, sandy topsoils. And um, so it definitely be one of the biggest areas. Um, and, of course, there's, um, you know, quite a bit through South Australia and Victoria and southern New South Wales. Thank you so much for having, um, taking your time out and having a chat with me today. Uh, no worries, Alice. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity.